Welcome. It's so good to see you. I, I know I'm not the usual face, right? Uh, <laughs> I've got a little less hair than Scott. I, I know it's not nearly as glorious of a look, but I, I hope that tonight is just as fruitful nonetheless. And they told me, they said, Phil, I need you to stay in between this line and all the way over here. So whoever's on camera, I'm sorry. I'm gonna do my absolute best, but I am excited on a serious note, really excited to be here with you tonight, just to unpack the word of God, right? That's why we're here. We want to see what, what it is God has for us. And I think tonight is gonna be exciting. You know, when I grew up, I grew up around this area. And when I was young, I was obsessed with being a pilot at one stage in my life. I wanted to be a pilot so bad. I want to get in the air and fly planes and, and do whatever I could. I just, I just wanted to get into the air. At age 15, my mom and my neighbor had colluded to, to throw a surprise birthday party in the air. Not, not a whole party, but just, hey, we're going to get you in the air in a, in, a, in a plane. And my neighbor was an airline pilot. And so she, she drove me over to this airport right out here, Burlington Airport. And when we approached, I saw my neighbor standing next to a small propeller airplane. And man, I was antsy, ready to get up into the air. I just, I just wanted to be in the air, that was it. I started looking around the airplane and I noticed that the neighbor was like, hey, hold on, <laughs> we're not gonna get in the plane just yet. And he was looking around the airplane, checking it out, just visually inspecting the plane that we were about to get into. And, and then he was like, okay, we've looked at the outside. We're good to go in that area, jump on in. So got in the, the seat, my mom got in the back and my neighbor got in the front. And guess what? I actually, I actually got to fly it a little bit. I, that's another story. But I, I got into the plane, I grabbed the seat and I was so excited. I'm just ready to get in the air. And he says, hold on. We got to look at some things first. And I felt like we sat in that cab for an eternity because all I wanted to do was what? Get into the air. That's all I wanted. But instead, he, he just checks every dial, makes sure that they're properly adjusted. He flips every switch that needs to be flipped. And then all of this, he tells me, is for the purpose of a safe flight. And not only a safe flight, but... The whole point is so that we can get into the air to begin with, right? If, if we don't know that this plane is safe and that we've done all the pre-flight list procedures, we don't know that we can even get into the air to begin with. And so we get into the air, right? That's the whole point. We get into the air, we have a flying altitude, and then the checklist was not just for those things, but also to ensure that we landed safely, and that's what tonight's passage is going to be a lot of like. It's going to be a lot like those pre-flight pre procedures, the checklist. It ensures that our faith is genuine and that we're progressing in it. So before tonight, before we leave, I want everyone in this room to have the tools in their tool belt to take off in their faith, to get to cruising altitude and ensure that you land where God intends you to land. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one. 
And this psalm serves as a spiritual gatekeeper to those who, who desire to enter into a relationship with God, right? It is that checklist, and it serves as that barrier to, to those who desire a genuine relationship with the Lord. And there is no takeoff or ability to maintain cruising altitude without the knowledge embedded in this psalm. And if we do not grasp it, we will not know what it is God desires for us when we get to even get off the runway, cruise and land. We won't know what it's like to be in his presence or to mature in our worship and relationship with him. So this author of the Psalm, he meant serious business when he wrote this. It is a, a barrier to the rest of the Psalms. And this is a, a big piece of text we're gonna go through. So I just wanna read it together. Let's read it together and then we will digest it as the night goes on. Psalm one, starting in verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Y'all ready? All right. Let's take a moment to pray before we dive into the scripture. Lord, we just come to you tonight and we ask that you would reveal your word God, just make your word come to life for us. Not just through words that I say, but God, what your spirit is speaking to the people here in this room, the people that you're calling into relationship with you, the people that you're calling to, to mature in their faith. Jesus, this is all about you. So let your word come to life. It's in your name we pray, amen. Psalm 1, verse one, blessed is the man. So let's pause right there. Let's pause right there. Blessed is the man. And the word used here for blessed is esher, right? It literally means to be happy. But throughout the ages, those who study the Hebrew language, they have opted to translate this word, not as blessed or not as happy, but instead as blessed. Because it's more than happy happening in this text. And as the psalm unfolds, you'll see the writer clearly communicate that there is something greater than a recipe for you or me to be happy or to shift from an emotional state from sadness to, to being happy in this passage. The psalmist is not merely writing about an exchange of trading bad emotions for good ones. The exchange is far beyond that. And because of that, the word esher has been translated as blessed in our text. And in this ancient beatitude, the psalmist appeals to the present happiness that obedience to God affords us. Because by the way, when we're obedient to God, we have earthly benefit to that. There is good in that. There's so much that can bring about like happiness here on this earth. But the psalmist also includes to, to tell us about the ensured prospect of our future state, meaning our eternity. And so in this psalm, you will see a balance and act between earth 
in eternity, earth in eternity as it unfolds. It's like, yes, happiness in the general sense, but also eternal happiness. And what does that look like? Also bad in the present time here on this earth. Also bad in eternity. And so we will see that unfold as this text continues. And I can promise you that the idea of happiness here on this earth is truly in this text, right? We can look all throughout the scriptures. And throughout the scriptures, God has promised his people, specifically the Israelites, if they obey his word, they will be what? Blessed. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28. This is the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 28, verses one through two. It says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And these are those if-then statements. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then that will happen. And these if-then statements, they're conditional, right? They have a condition behind it. And while they might not speak to how God directly deals with those of us who are in the new covenant, if we trusted in Jesus, not directly, but it does remind us that we are in a cause and effect world. This happens and this is the outcome, right? That's what we're dealing with here in some of this passage. There's a, a wise proverb and it is, if you play dumb games, you what? Win dumb prizes, right? It's not in the Bible, but there's some biblical truth behind it somewhere, right? So that's cause and effect. You win dumb, or you play dumb games, you win dumb prizes. And the scriptures are intended to be just as practical as they are theological. It's not always up here in the sky, right? There's some practicalness behind it. So being obedient to God allows us to have a happiness here on this earth. But this text is far greater than that. And to consider this blessed man as only happy is to disregard his eternal state. It isn't just a happiness that puts a smile on our face, but it grants us, grants us the, the blessed person who seeks that life, with an eager expectation of God's divine approval, that somehow God could look at you and I and say, you are righteous. Interesting. This will be in your notes, this first part of your notes. To be blessed assumes that you are approved by God. So let's continue to read this psalm and we'll see how this blessed man approved by God is described. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. These are the things that the blessed man avoids. The counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinner, and the seat of the scoffers. He's avoiding all these things, intentionally avoiding them. And all those who seek a happy and blessed life will avoid those things at all cost. The psalmist is saying, if you distance yourself from evil, right, there is a blessed path that you can embark upon. And in a practical sense, 
when you avoid evil, right? And you avoid the wicked, the ways of the wicked. You avoid the pitfalls and the scandals and all the other things that accompany wickedness. But that's the trick with sin is it has an inherent appeal to our flesh, does it not? Right? Like it has an apparent, an inherent appeal to our flesh and it always comes with strings attached. Do something for me. Take out, take out your phones. Everybody got your phones on you, right? Take out your phones real quick. Let your screen go black. Just go black. Now I want you to look into that screen. And as you look into that black mirror, I want you to consider something. Keep looking. Is that person that you see in the black mirror allowing sin to dictate their life? Are they led around by the counsel of the wicked, the poisonous advice of those who oppose God? Have they become more familiar with the the path of sin than they are the ways of God? And has that person looking back in that black mirror become so accustomed at living apart from God that they have a deep desire to keep sinning? You can put your phone down. You know, it's either by participating in the evils or averting them all together that our allegiance is exposed. Our very lifestyle reveals whether we're living for our own interest or for the greater interest of the Lord. So let's look at these three things, right? The counsel of the wicked, uh, the way of the sinner, and the seat of the scoffer. But let's start with the counsel of the wicked. Evil never lacks an opinion, right? I think we can agree on that. And it's easy to pinpoint the, the wicked or evil advice that comes from the outside. And most of us who have walked with the Lord for quite a while, we're pretty good at it, right? Like, like you can kind of sniff it out when it happens. Now, I love smells a lot. My favorite smell is coming home to a wonderfully cooked meal. As a kid, I'd come home to all kinds of great meals. It was spaghetti, fried chicken, beef stew, beef tips and rice. I loved it. But there was one meal that my mom fixed. Oh man, I couldn't stand it. See, I loved being greeted at the door by, by fried chicken. But if I was greeted at the door by this dish, I was liable to turn around, run to the neighbor's house and see what they're having for dinner, right? It was, it was that bad. In fact, this meal was so nasty. It was rank. When, when my mom fixed it, she would open the windows of the house and you could smell it emanating from the home. It's just, even before you open the door, you know what's in that kitchen and you know you don't want to go in that kitchen. My, my mom's here. I love you, mom. Sorry. <laughs> but here, here's the dish. You may have had this and you may love this and I'm going to judge you. Fried salmon patties. Oh, no. No, no, I don't know. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't want to pretend to. And look, I'm not judging you, but I'm kind of judging you. She, she would get those cans of, of fish 
And, and that's, not, that's not food, by the way. I don't know, that's like cat food. She would get those cans of fish and she would, she'd peel them out, whatever she did with it, she'd peel them open and she'd put them in a, in a pile and she'd mash them up. Oh gosh. And then she'd fry it up and the whole house would just smell like fish. Oh, it was disgusting. I, I couldn't take it. And for many of us, that's kind of how the advice or the counsel of the wicked is, right? We smell it, we're disgusted by it, and we take off running the other direction. And it is easy to pinpoint the counsel of the wicked when it comes from other people or it's emanating from a home. It is much more difficult, and I caution you, it is much more difficult to pinpoint it when it comes from within, right? Because that's what happens. Sin still gets a hold of us at times. The counsel of the wicked, the counsel of the wicked are things that appeal to our flesh, but they are contrary to the word of God. And it can come from the outside or the inside. And this is in your notes, refusing to walk, refusing to walk in the counsel of the wicked implies that, you play, that sin plays no part in guiding your decisions. And then after the counsel of the wicked, we have the way of the sinners. The blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners, meaning that there is a path that those who sin are traveling down and the blessed or righteous person does all they can to avoid it and steer clear of it. Now remember, the blessed man avoids all three of these things, or the blessed person. You know, my wife and I, we have two young kids. We have a two-year-old, and we have a six-month-old. Our oldest, Timothy, is probably more famous in this church than I am. That's all right. <laughs> Everybody loves Timothy. And Timothy has a clear favorite parent. And if you know anything about kids, they don't care if you know it, right? They just don't care if you know that they have a favorite parent. Spoiler alert, it ain't me. <laughs> Check out this video. God, we made daddies. Mama. No. <laughs> daddies. Mama. No. God made daddies. Mama. No. Say daddies. Mama. <laughs> no, not mamas. <laughs> Man, that boy loves his mama. And every night when it's time to get ready for bed, we make him pick out a book. And we say, all right, hey, buddy, go pick out a book. We're going to read together. And he goes in his little bin and he starts you know, rummaging through it. And he, he picks out Hungry Little Caterpillar or whatever. And he, he holds it up and he looks at both of us. And he makes sure that I see this. Like he's making eye contact with me. And he goes, mama. And he wants, he wants mom to read the book to him. And so I relent, I let him read it. I let mom read the book, it's fine. I'm not destroyed on the inside. And then, then when we're done reading the book, it's time to pray. I say, hey, little buddy, let's, let's get ready to, to pray us. Let's pray together as a family. And then he puts his little hands together. He closes his eyes, he opens them up and he looks right at me. Guess what he says? Mama. He wants mama to read. He wants mama to pray. And then after we're done praying, we have 
one of two options for him. We'll cut the lights out and in the dark, we will sing a song right before we lay him down. And he gets either a silly song with daddy, right? With his dad and, and I'll sing a song. My song's about monkeys. I just made it up. It's like, I'm a monkey man, right? And, and you, would think, you would think he'd love that. And he does love that. But then mom sings a sweet song, a very sweet song. Her song, in fact, is so sweet, it's actually scripture. It's number six, the priestly prayer, or the priestly prayer that, that we see Moses say, hey, Aaron, I want you to sing this over your people or say this with your people. And mom sings that with them. And so we say, hey, buddy, what do you want? A sweet song or a silly song? Guess what he wants? A sweet song with who? Mama, every single time. Now, when he's done, what's funny is he, he wants the sweet song. And then when, as soon as she's done singing that sweet song, he says, monkey. And it looks to me like he wants me to sing the monkey song. It's like, no, you, you lost it today. Like, <laughs> no, I still sing it too. <laughs> but here's the thing. He loves his mama. And, and why does he choose his mama? Not because he doesn't love me. Right? I know he loves me, but because his mom comforts and satisfies him in a way that no one else can. Right? He is comforted and satisfied by mom in such a special way. And even when another option is available, what does he want? The comfort and satisfaction of his mom. And I think we should be the very same way with God. That even when other options are available, we still choose God and we are satisfied with him and his ways. And scripture does a great, it does a great job at interpreting itself when it comes to understanding the way of sinners, right? That other path that isn't God. And so I think it's wise here to look at Matthew chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Let's look at that together. This is the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Right? There's those two paths. There's God's way, and then there's the wide path that leads to destruction. One path leads to life. One path leads to destruction. And this is in your notes, refusing to stand in the way of the sinners indicates that you find life in the Lord and are fully satisfied with him. Fully satisfied with him, right? And then finally, at the, the last part of this first verse, we have the seat of the scoffer. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. Have you ever opened your mouth just to be met by like a verbal scoff from another person? Right? It's, it's pretty offensive, right? You say something and, and they might scoff just verbally as if they're disgusted by what you said. Or maybe they think what you said is ridiculous. Maybe it even offends their very being. That's a scoffer. And scoffers have no problem letting you know that they're scoffing, right? 
and, and they have no problem. They'll let you know that they're scoffing. They ridicule and mock those who have a different idea of their own, who walk a different path than their own. These are the scoffers and they are proud. And this is, scripture talks about scoffers being one of the furthest away from repentance because they are proud and arrogant in their sin. Their ways are the best, not God's, theirs. So scoffers are defined by their unbelief their arrogance and their defiance. That's a scoffer. Psalm 14 verse one says this, the fool says in his heart, this is the mouth of, of a scoffer, right? This is the, the kind of attitude a scoffer might have. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Acts 13 verse 41 says it like this, look you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So refusing to sit in the seat of the scoffer demonstrates, this is in your notes, refusing to sit in the seat of the scoffer demonstrates that you have a genuine belief in God, reverence for him and obedience toward him. But you may have noticed I left something out of that first verse. We're squeezing everything we can out of this, by the way. That's, that's the way I roll. You may have noticed I left something out. Look at the words you just wrote down. Look at all the words you just wrote down. There's only three of them. What are they? You've got walk, sit, or stand, and then sit. Walk, stand, sit. The blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. To walk shows an association with another individual. At best, it demonstrates a sense of togetherness and at worst, it reveals that you are headed in a common direction. Walking, in your notes, walking shows an association with sin. And then this passage also informs us that the blessed person does not stand in the way of sinners. Not, not like you're in the way of the guy who's sinning, no, like, like the path that they're on, right? So it does not stand in the way of sinners. And this is moving from walking to standing. Interesting. Well, if, if you're not walking and, and you're not progressing in the same direction, what does this imply? Well, that you have familiarized yourself and affiliated yourself with the company of those on that path. They have formally affiliated and familiarized themselves with the path of sin. Standing, in your notes, standing shows an affiliation with the ways of sin. And yet, this verse continues to grow with intimacy and it's, it's wild. You'll see it unfold. It's got an intensity and intimacy with sin. Look at this. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So we've gone from walking to standing to sitting. And each verb intentionally growing with its in intensity and intimacy with sin. Because if you choose to sit down, you're abiding in sin and you're entertaining it. 
And it's no longer you're just associated or affiliated with it. But now it's your honored guest. And it's in your home. And it's at your workplace. And it's in your cars. And it's everywhere else that you find yourself. So sitting in your notes shows an affection toward sin. And by painting a colorful picture of what the blessed person avoids, we get to see the psalmist also paints a vivid image of the actions of someone who is not blessed. We get to see the inverse. And an inverse of Psalm 1 might read like this. Again, this is not scripture. This is an inverse of Psalm 1 or my take on it. The one who is blessed or the one who is not blessed associates themselves with sin, affiliates themselves with the ways of sin and affectionately desires to sin. The blessed person will avoid all those things and, and avoid becoming those things at all costs. And they are not defined to their, by their relationship to sin. Rather, they're defined by something altogether different than sin. And that very thing that they're defined by is gonna be teased out in this next verse that we're looking at. All right, let's look at it. Blessed is the man, back in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, instead of seeing, instead of seeing what the blessed man avoids, we get to see what he allows to permeate in his life. And what is it? The law, the law. He is to consume the law of God. His delight, in fact, is in the law of the Lord. His affection, he has a love and an affection for God's word, his word. And, and you know, this is something that I think I have struggled with most of my life is that I love the word of God, but it's really hard to live the word of God out. I love the word of God. But see, here, here's the thing. A, a love for the word of God isn't merely to just marvel at the, the beauty of scripture or the linguistic poetry or, or the deep theological concepts found within scripture. It's to be obedient to it. That is a genuine love for the law or the word of God. And we should, this is in your notes, we should marvel at the beauty of God's word, but it must be accompanied by obedience. We have to love living it out as well. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And it's funny, I was running this sermon by a few, few different people before I gave it today. And uh, today I've ran it by somebody that Scott actually introduced me to. And we were talking back and forth about some of the concepts. And he just asked me a simple question. Hey, what's your favorite part about it? Like what, what really stands out to you in this message? Well, I said, this idea right here. That, that a love for God's word is not just we marvel at it and, and we like it and it sounds cool and it's deep, but that we live it out in our lives. And he said, oh, that's really cool, Phil. How'd you do that today? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't. I, did, I haven't yet. I haven't. I, I guess I haven't. And, and so I sat back and I thought about it. 
And I was like, look, I've just been preparing for this message. They said, that's cool. Uh, get up and do something. Like go out and do something and be obedient to the word of God before you get in front of those people and you tell them to be obedient to the word of God. Get up and go out. I was like, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> great connection. <laughs> and he is. He is a great connection. And so I, I left and I got up and I went to Elon University. And that's a place where for our young adult ministry, and we want to we wanna tackle that. And we want to just come onto that campus and, and love them with, with as much love as Jesus can, can provide for us. But we want to tackle them for the glory of God. Because that used to be a Christian campus. God's still in the business of redeeming. And we are excited about getting on Elon's campus. I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. It's going to happen. But I got onto the campus. And they're away right now. They're not all back from, from break. And I just walked around and prayed. I just walked around and prayed. And nothing magical happened. Nothing crazy happened. But I just walked around and prayed. Because I know those people need Jesus. Just as much as I did. Just as much as I do. And so I got up and I went out and I just prayed. And I was obedient to the word of God. And that's what it is to meditate on his law. It is to, yes, marvel at it, absolutely. Repeat it, yes, absolutely. Memorize it for sure. But guess what? Not only do you memorize it and repeat it and study it, but you live it out. And we want to tackle that campus. But God's word requires us to be obedient. We have to take action. In Psalm 1, the writer uses the word law. We've been talking about that a lot. The word law to reference all of scripture, right, as a whole, aka the Bible, right? And for us, that includes the New Testament, the totality of God's word. And there's a particular individual that God used to fulfill all the commandments in the law and all the prophecies that are written about. So let's listen to the words of this individual. Matthew, verse, verse 17 in chapter five. Do not think, this is the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus lived in perfect accordance with the Father's will and fulfilled all the prophecies that were written about him. And because of that, we have a greater understanding of Psalm 1. And we are forced to acknowledge that Psalm 1 is speaking both about the written word of God, Scripture, but also the personified word of God, who is Jesus and Jesus is the word of God. John chapter one, verses one through four say this. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word or word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So the path of surrendering to God's word, right? Jesus leads to life. And the other path leads to destruction. So, so let's, let's keep teasing this out. Let's read verse two again. In his, but, in, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed person in your notes has an unyielding affection for the entire word of God, both written and personified. I'll read that again. The, the blessed person has an unyielding affection for the entire word of God, both written and personified. And then he meditates on it. He lives it out. And how often does he do it? What's the, what's the passage say? Day and what? Night. Day and night. All the time. The person meditate, the righteous person meditates on the word of God. When things are going wrong, they meditate on the word of God. When they're going right, they meditate on the word of God. But my question is, does that define you? Is that the path that you're currently on? Reading it, studying it, meditating, living it out? What path are you on? Uh, Listen to the beautiful description found in, in verse three of Psalm one about an individual or the blessed man who meditates on the word of God. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields what its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, what's he do? Prospers. See, ancient, ancient Israel was a dry and arid place. It, it was very difficult for a tree to have longevity. And so for it to to stay where it's at and not wither and not die, it had to have deep roots that were rooted in some form of water. And that's where it would draw up its nutrition to survive. And in this passage, the blessed man is the tree and the word of God is his sustenance, the waters. And to survive, to weather the the world we're in, to take off, to maintain cruising altitude, we we have to be rooted in the word of God. And then there's fruit to be found. The fruit is an indication of maturity in the tree. And the tree is who? It's the righteous man. Evidence of abiding in the word of God will be plentiful. And no doubt the psalmist is intending for those who read this to see the blessed man as the example to strive towards. But without the word of God, and this is in your notes, without the word of God, we are lifeless and without hope. But with it, we can endure the most difficult of situations and have something to show for it. See, God has designed us in such a way that we are dependent upon his words. Think about when Satan approaches Jesus towards the end of his fast. Remember this? What happens? Satan says, hey, you know, you look a little hungry. Why don't you turn those stones into uh, some loaves? Eat. Turn it into bread. What does Jesus say? Matthew chapter four, verse four says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of who? God, the word that comes from the mouth of God. The word himself, Jesus, stresses the importance of being rooted in scripture. Obedience, obedience toward and abiding in the word of God brings life. This is in your notes, where God is, there is life. 
And where he is not, where he is not, there is only death, drought, and withering. Now let's listen to this shift that takes place. Let's listen to the shift. And this is going to get a little tough. Verse 4, Psalm 1. The wicked are not so. There's no life or fruit. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And as where the blessed person has been described as a a vibrant, green, fruit-bearing tree, the, the wicked has been described as the chaff. And chaff isn't a tree. It's not a tree. It's uh, not a fruit. And it's not a seed. It's none of those things. The chaff is the husk of a grain or a kernel. So in this time, crops would be gathered. We'll talk about wheat, wheat specifically. Wheat would be gathered and it would be bundled up and it would be taken to a place called the threshing floor. And on that threshing floor, the the harvester would either beat it upon the ground or lay it out for an animal to trample over it. And the heads of the grain would be crushed, separating the wheat and the chaff. And then what would happen next is that the the person working that that pile of grain would take what's called a winnowing fork, or we might call it a pitchfork, a winnowing fork, and they would take it, they toss it into the air, and the grains, the kernels would drop down onto the ground because they're heavy, and then the wind would scatter the chaff. The the chaff was gone. It's either ignored or or maybe burned up. They would thresh and winnow the grain to separate it forever. Either being ignored or burned was the fate of the chaff. And chaff was known as being useless or, or in the way. And the writer is making a clear distinction between those who walk a righteous path and those who do not. So the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, the seat of the scoffers are all reserved for destruction like the chaff. And hang in there, it gets a little bit tougher. <laughs> I know this is, this is like tough stuff, but I want us to walk through scripture in a way that we don't avoid the difficult topics. Psalm 1 verse 5 continues. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And if, if it wasn't clear now what the writer meant, he's making it pretty obvious. He's, he's talking about them facing judgment. Now, judgment is multi-layered, just like the word blessed was. Judgment is, is not just, hey, you're gonna have a hard time here on this earth. That's gonna happen too. Yeah, if you run from, from godly advice, you're gonna encounter some, some pretty tough times. But also this speaks to an eternal state. This is talking about standing before the Lord on the day of judgment. The New Testament helps us shed some light onto the larger picture. So let's look at Matthew chapter three, verse 12. We see the words of John the Baptist as he talks about Jesus. Matthew 3, verse 12, his, talking about Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Man, y'all wanna come give this message? (laughs) Uh, this 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 is tough, but this is about judgment. This is not just earthly consequences. This is 
pertaining to eternity. And in your notes, Jesus will personally thresh and winnow the grain from the chaff. Jesus. Because of Jesus' completed work, there is a clear dividing line between the righteous and the unrighteous. And when, when this psalm states that sinners will not be in the congregation of the righteous, it's, it's like saying they won't have a leg to stand on. Right? Like that, that's, that's essentially what it's saying. They're not going to have a leg to stand on. And Jesus will come and he will judge. That's going to happen. He will condemn. Those all things will happen. But like I said, it gets harsher, but let's keep reading. There is hope. Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, the Lord approves of a particular road that we can travel down. It's the road of the righteous, right? There is a path that God approves of. There are people that God approves of. So how do they get there? But yet, in God's perfect and holy nature, he has to still judge. And he's not going to let crimes go unpunished. And so he will condemn. That's going to happen. He will condemn and the way of the wicked will perish. But I wrestle with this. And I think we all wrestle with this. And we should, by the way, wrestle with this. Because there are people who you love. There are people who I love. There are people who we know they're not walking the righteous path. And they're walking down the path that leads to destruction. And if Jesus came today with a winnowing fork and he, he went down to that threshed wheat and he tossed it in the air, you would fall down, but they would be scattered to the air. We all know somebody like that. And without this one thing, we are all doomed to perish. I think most of you know what it is, but let's keep going. I want us to look at a verse in John chapter three, famous, famous verse 16. And we're also going to look at 17. Hey, by the way, there are no cliche Bible verses, all right? This is good stuff. We just talked about a road that is going to perish. Now I want you to hear the words from Jesus himself as he has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Good news, Jesus didn't come the first time with the winnowing fork. Good news. And because of that, there is still hope for all people to be like the blessed man in Psalm 1. And that's the goal. That's the hope is that somehow all of us can walk this righteous path, but none of us fit the bill of being perfect like this blessed man is described. Well, thankfully, guess who does? Jesus. Jesus fits the bill of the blessed man. And I'm not saying that Psalm 1 is a full-on prophecy, but I'm saying that it describes a perfect individual and Jesus is the only perfect individual. And he is the road, he's, he's the one following, we, we should be following on the road. He's the one leading the way and we're behind him, striving to be like him on the righteous path. He lived a perfect life 
of the blessed man, walked in perfect accordance and will with, with the will of the father, died a criminal's death, right? That's how submitted to the, to the father's will he was. And then he died on the cross. He was raised to new life. And now he sits at the right hand of the father today. And his return is imminent. Well, Jesus is coming. And he will come to judge eventually. And he will come with a winnowing fork. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Jesus, the word of God, created a way for you and for me to be truly blessed. Listen to the words of Apostle Paul. Man, this is beautiful. As he writes to the church in Corinth. He says this in 2 Corinthians verse verse 21 of chapter 5. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him Jesus For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The only way we ever get to take off, maintain cruising altitude and land where God intended is if we trust in the blessed one who is Jesus. That's the only way. The only way that we get to walk the righteous path and God looks at us and says, I approve of you as if he sees the works of his son, Jesus, standing before us. And there are eternal consequences for the other path. There's separation and there's torment. And and it's not because God fails to love us appropriately. It's not because of any other reason than we chose sin and our ways over him. And God is not in the business of forcing our hands. He's not gonna force you to come to him. So Psalm 1 gives us a glimpse into the one who is truly a blessed man while reminding us to read, study, and obey the very words of God. So fill yourself up with God's words. Not because it saves you, not because any of that saves you, but because you are following behind the word, the blessed one who is Jesus who walked and still walks the blessed, righteous path. And if you know people who don't know Jesus, because I think all of us do, it's your job to witness, to be a testimony about the risen Christ in their lives. That's the goal. Do it and be led by the spirit of God in the way in which you do it. Some of us are, really good at that. Some of us, maybe not so good. We got to work on that. But if we desire to take off, maintain cruising altitude, progressing in our faith, right? And then land where God intended, we must look to the words of God found in the scriptures and live by them after having trusted in Jesus. If we desire to live an eternal, eternally fruitful life, We must trust in Jesus, the word of God, for our very salvation. We've talked about avoiding the ways of the wicked, right? We mentioned that. And we talked about not walking in in the path of the sinner. We've talked about abiding in the word of God. And we've talked about these eternal outcomes. One is with the father and one is in destruction. Before you leave this room tonight, I want you to do something. I want you to decide, 
Because I've thrown a lot at you. This is a lot of stuff, and I, I totally get that. But I want you to do something before you leave this room tonight. I want you to decide which of the three things that I'm about to mention that you are going to do. Do you need to actively avoid the sin, the pitfalls that accompany it, right? The sin in our lives, then commit to doing that, right? Commit to to actively avoiding sin in your life and what that's gonna look like. You're gonna have to sit down with Jesus and figure that out. Or do you need to spend more time This is the second one. Do you need to spend more time meditating on the word of God? Meaning that you're you're not just reading it and studying it and walking away and telling people all kinds of cool truths about God, but you're living it out. And when they look at you, they know, man, that person doesn't just know stuff about Jesus. Like they know Jesus. They know him. They don't just know about him. They know the man. Or do you need to weigh where you're going to spend your eternity. Do you need to weigh whether or not the path you're on is worth it? If if you're not on the righteous path and you're heading down the path and, and when Jesus comes with his winnowing fork and he tosses the threshed grain into the air, the chaff goes this way and the grain falls down. Do you need to weigh the eternal ramifications, the eternal ramifications of the path you're on? Those are the three things. Commit to one. Either intentionally avoid sin, meditate on God's word, or weigh the eternal ramifications of your current path. Let's pray. God, you are good. And there is so much truth just embedded in this passage. And Lord, we could continue on for another hour of just walking through your truth. But God, tonight, I pray that you move in every single person in this room to commit to doing one of those three things. Being intentional in our avoidance of sin, committing to to reading and studying and living out your word or, or weighing the eternal ramifications of the path that we're on. Because Jesus, we want, we want people to come to know you. That's what this is all about. We love you, we trust you, We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.